welcome to Second World Problems, the first best world building podcast. I am Morgan, although this week you can call me Captain Shakespeare, the uh, pirate. Shakespeare. Shakespeare. And I'm Finn, and this episode I am Ben Barnes as Dunstan Thorne. I saw that on the INDB just before we started. I was like, Ben Barnes? I'm like, oh, yeah, he's like the, the dad in the flashback. He's hardly yeah. in it. <laughs> he was in it for like the first minute, and then he's not in it again until he's like old and he's played by a different guy. Yeah. But he's still in it, so <laughs> that's why. In what? What are we talking about today? We're being very vague. Well, this episode we are talking about Stardust, the film and the novel. So Stardust, um, the novel was written by Neil Gaiman and it was published in 1999. And in some versions, it contains illustrations by Charles Vess, not in my version though, which is sad. Um, In 2007, it was adapted into a film and it is about the adventures of Tristan, which is the name we're going to continue to use throughout the rest of the episode. Although in the book, his name is Tristran. Weird. With an R, which is very difficult to (laughs) pronounced so Tristan or Tristran Thorne and he leaves his little rural English village and crosses over into a world of fantasy in order to find a fallen star and bring it back to to his rural English love interest called Victoria and you know adventures happen along the way and pretty standard stuff yeah pretty standard as they do it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a story if things didn't happen oh that's true it would be pretty boring it would just be a a life event that happened to someone. Yeah. Um, so the world that we're dealing with is our world in his, like historically our world sort of, but not because obviously it's conjoined to another world that is not our world. So it is in the book, it's England and then fairy. It's specifically called fairy. And we've already sort of, uh, we've already sort of talked a bit about the fae, but, and, and sort of, the origins of that but that's what it is in the book whereas in the movie it's i've just called it england and fantasy land because it's not it doesn't have the associations i'm going to talk about that a bit more but it doesn't have the associations that you would expect from uh, fairyland does that make sense yeah i think so i i, I think it's yeah fairyland is not how i would describe it yeah i, I will say um just for, to lay the groundwork here, I'm only coming at it from a movie yes. perspective. I haven't read the book, but I am familiar with the movie. So yes. I'm going to be relating back to that. That's what you're bringing to the table today because I haven't rewatched the movie in a while. So um, this is mainly book-based. So anything from the film that you want to point out, that's that's on you. We'll see. So in terms of like how the novel is written, it is an English folklore-based fantasy, so it, it's um, and it's, it's also obviously got done in the style of Neil Gaiman, so it's quite um, it's a fun read, but it's it's got a very specific sort of aesthetic to its writing, so it plays into like a, a specific type of folklore writing, like it's it's not like a Tolkien sort of style English folklore fantasy. It's it's a bit more um, it's a bit more poetic and a bit less. Um, <laughs> bit less heavy and it's not it, it, it the way it, it does the fantasy is different it's it's a bit more I mean it's not like grounded fantasy because it is fantasy fantasy but it's not like 
it's not so heavy on the world building. It's a little bit more, I suppose, like nostalgic in terms of like its folklore roots. Whereas Tolkien was doing like a whole, he's like, here's the whole world. Whereas Neil Gaiman's in Stardust is doing like a, here's, here's like little English countryside. And then also, but it's connected to a completely different world, but is still like familiar um, in that it's, we've we've seen this world before and in, in in basically fairy tales and stories that we've we've been growing we've we've always talked about the things that happen you know in this story the idea of like unicorns and falling stars and all that stuff it's it's like princes and stuff it's familiar princes. it's well worn ground it is it is exactly that um and I just a little thing that I noticed while I was preparing this episode is that the books are a bit sexier than the film in that um, the there like there is I suppose the briefest description of the assignation that Dunstan and Tristan's mother have as opposed to like obviously they cut to black in the film he just goes inside her like cart and you're like ooh what are they doing whereas in the book like there's a bit more description so like it's it's sexier in that way but also like there's a lot of description of like breasts a lot of boob talk oh yeah um, which is interesting. And I completely forgot that that was a thing and I had no reason to expect it until I was reading it. And I was like, oh, there's a lot of, yeah, chest descriptions going on. <laughs> um, so, yeah, in that, in that way, aside from, I suppose, you, you take that and then you line it up with, so you get, you get, you know, slight descriptions, more descriptions of like naked bodies than you get than you see in the film, but the film does show you like quite a lot of Michelle Pfeiffer. So like you have to weigh those up, I suppose. I didn't think of that when I was writing that note down, but now that I'm thinking about it, I suppose you have to weigh up which you think is more rewarding in terms of sexiness. Michelle Pfeiffer's mostly naked body or like descriptions of like naked bodies. Yeah. She's also old at points, so that's not very rewarding. No, I'm talking about the bit where she strips in front of the mirror. Yeah. Specifically that bit. That's specific. <laughs> bit none of the rest of it it's just that one bit that's why it's a balancing act yeah which one you go with <laughs> so there's two major settings which we've already sort of talked about so like there's the because of the england slash fantasy land divide so in england it's tristan's village of wall which is as i said as i said a rural town um and it sits on the border between our world and the magical one next door so it is described in the book as standing on a high jut of granite surrounded by woodland close to a lake and fields for grazing. The wall for which the village is named is to the east and is described as old, built of rough square lumps of hewn granite, and it comes from the woods and goes back into the woods once more. It has one break in it, though, through which a large meadow can be seen. So you're already getting, like, even with the description of the wall, you're getting, like, that idea of, like, the woods that you often get in fairy tales, the idea of, like, the woods is a magical, special place. And then you get the the meadow that you see through the gap in the wall that's different from the meadow that's in front of the wall, you know, that sort of stuff. The grass is greener on the other side. It sure is. And then you get Fairyland, um, which is what it's called in the book, and you also get the Kingdom of Stormhold, which is part of Fairyland. Um, so beyond the wall is is the fairy is sort of a nation, I guess. And then Stormhold is just a specific kingdom within that. And it fairy is a magical land where impossible things happen and all the adventures sort of take place within fairy. He's not really, he's not adventuring in rural England. So 
the book makes reference to the fairy market. Once every nine years, the fairy market sets up in the meadow um, beyond the wall and the townsfolk trade with the people beyond the wall. In the film, the market just seems to always be there in a town beyond the wall and there isn't like, there isn't that association with like fairy that the book sets up. It's just like there's a town and it has a market and they sell weird stuff. Whereas like in the book, it's like they, it, it talks about all like the, the impossible things they sell and how the people selling them are, are strange and not quite human and things like that. Bit off. Which is how we get to the, and describes the common rules for interacting with the fae, fairies or fair folk in English folklore. So there's those rules that um, come down through the folklore apply to the market and are explained um, in the book when Tristan's father Dunstan ventures there on market day. So um, the rules are be polite, take no gifts, never eat fairy food, fruit, water or wine. Bargains um, in terms of like other sort of things that relate to sort of um, the fae and fairies from folklore is that bargains and words are also important when dealing with the fae. So specificity is important when you make a trade. So like it is by truth. So like, for instance, it is by truthful words that the witch queen curses Ditchwater Sal to not be able to behold Yvain or anything Yvain or anything pertaining to her. So like you might remember that bit from the movie where mm-hmm. she, she spits the food on the ground and says, you fed me Lambeth grass. How dare you? That sort of stuff. Another example is when Tristan is taken by Ditchwater Sal to the war market in the book. So she says, I swear upon my honor and upon my true name that I will take no action to harm you upon the journey. And then Tristan clarifies, or by inaction or indirect action, allow harm to come to me or my companion. So you need that. You like he's. You can't leave any room for loopholes. You really need to be like drafting a contract every time you have a conversation. And it needs to be watertight because, of course, um, it is in in keeping to the letter of their agreement, but not the spirit of the agreement that allows. Tristan to be turned into a dormouse for the trip because the witch does provide everything she said she would. She provides board, board lodging. She keeps him safe from harm and she delivers him to wall. But he's also a dormouse because, like, <laughs> he didn't specify that she she had to leave him as human. You know, so you really have to be specific um, and everything has to be watertight. No loopholes. Can't have any any room, any wiggle room for interpretation. Just sounds exhausting. Yeah, um, but that's that's the fate. They are exhausting. <laughs> so the book also sort of deals with the ideas of true names and rule magic. So some of this information comes to the TV tropes page on functional magic, which I've been visiting quite a lot um, recently. So a true name perfectly describes something's essential nature. Knowing a true name gives one power over the owner of the name. In some portrayals, using a person's true name forces them to obey your commands. In others, a true name gives you a connection to the name's owner that allows you to work magic on them from a distance. Sometimes a person's true name is needed if you want to work out want to work any magic on them at all. Um, true names are another thing that also ties back to like sort of fairy folklore in that one of the other rules is that you don't give a fairy your real name because then they have power over you so that's that's there's a lot of like stuff that's filtering back to like interpretations of like i would say a wildly european folklore not just english folklore yeah um and fairies in particular so in some stories all creatures have true names whereas others limit the use for true names to certain kinds of creatures 
such as fairies, demons, or dragons. As a rule, objects do not have true names, but even if that rule isn't obeyed by all universes, but they you don't tend to like have like that rock has a real name. <laughs> stuff like that. You might have like um like a like elemental sort of whole things having true names. So like in like the name of the wind, the wind has a true name that you can learn as like an intimate as an elemental elemental sort of whole and like rock as a whole like any sort of rock could have one singular name i guess but you don't tend to get like every single different pebble has its own name that'd be overwhelming it would be hard to learn yeah (laughs) um a person's true name might be self-determined or bestowed on them by someone else possibly in a religious or magical ritual In works which feature true names prominently, people tend to guard them jealously and even will have a second name or two or three or more, depending on on the work, for everyday use. Um, True names are, as I've mentioned, a form of rural magic, so that involves the presence of underlying guiding principles of magical influence and magical use. So other common examples of rural magic include spells and rituals. So the magic that is in the Stardust novel form is very much based in the concept of true names and the spoken agreement forged into a binded principle, which is also a form of rural magic. So it's working within the same magic system um, the whole time. So like the idea of a spoken agreement forged into a binding principle or or a bond that you, it is the literal interpretation of your word is your bond or like, if you make a promise, you can't break it. Pinky promises. Yeah. Um, the other main rule that fuels the premise um, of Stardust is that the heart of a living star can prevent the crimes of both age and time. So once again, back to um, immortality giving materials that I guess some people consume because that's what the book and the movie posit, but also can just be... Given in that if you have, like, I don't understand to a degree how Tristan, like, how, like she doesn't literally give her heart to Tristan, but, like, it also sort of is, is implied in the book that she does. It's very strange. Give me a peach any day. This is too yeah. complicated. <laughs> right. And also that stars cannot cross the wall and retain their living fairy form, instead becoming simply stardust. <gasps> the name. Yeah. It's the name of the book. It is the name. Um, so the story itself begins in late April 1839, um, and this is what the book literally says, as John William Draper had just photographed the moon and Charles Dickens was serializing Oliver Twist. So it's a really, it, it does have quite a set time period. Um, however, the majority of the book takes place 17 years later because it's about Tristan, not Dunstan, um, starting around October 1856. So Tristan, as we've already talked about, is the protagonist of the film. He is half human and half fairy. Less less half fairy in the film because there's no posited fairy land, but also like he's obviously half of one world, half of the other world. Um, so born over the wall, he is returned to his father as a baby to be raised in wall, only to return to fairy as a as a grown man on a quest for a fallen star. If you consider seventeen to be a, a grown man, I in the film he does really seem like you know, 20, which I would say is, like, getting there towards, like, proper, like, yeah. adulthood. 17, less so. He's courting. He's um challenging other men for yep. a girl's hand in marriage. It's pretty grown up, I'd say. 
Yeah. Um, and then obviously, so the star is Yvain. I think they pronounce it Yvain. So she's the first star of the evening, although she is rig- originally an unwilling accomplice of Tristan's in that he binds her with a special, not rope, but chain. Like, chain thank you <laughs> which in the book is said to be made of fish scales and cat's breath and like silver and moonlight mixed together or something so it, it's a very special chain um and he forcibly abducts her i guess <laughs> however in in the book um after he saves her life they become bound to each other's welfare by the law of her people so like because she basically owes him a life debt so like she has to stay with him because of that she's still not happy about it at that point but, like, the bond between them becomes something more emotional and, like, less less of a physical, like, I have captured you and more of a, well, now I owe you something and according to custom it has to be paid back in some way. There are the princes. You're quite a fan of Septimus, aren't you? I love, I love the princes. They're, they're in the name, like Septimus and Secundus. Very yeah. fun, very fun. So um, four of the princes in the book, and I... I I think it's three in the movie, but one, they quickly kill yeah. one of them. Um, so four princes in the book start as ghosts, so they're already dead. So um, Secundus, Quintus, Cortus, and Sextus are already dead. Three of them are then left alive, so there's Primus, Tertius, and Septimus. The three alive brothers each killed one of their dead brothers, except Septimus, who killed two, so he killed Quintus and Sextus, whereas the other two only killed one each. The thing here is that they are all in line. They are all in line for the throne. Their father is old and dying, um, and whoever is eventually left alive becomes the eighty-second Lord of Stormhold and Master of the High Crags. Which, to be fair, is a really banging title, and I can see why they want it. Yeah, but also like it's like oh yeah, you just gotta slowly kill off your brothers and stuff, and then the last one's dead. I'm like, that is like. The reason you're meant to have multiple is like a backup, and they're like, we had a yeah. backup, but you're meant to kill them all. So it's like, I don't I understand how the system never failed them before. Like, it's a, it's, it should have failed them many times where like the one left died or something. Well, I suppose it's the principles of fantasy land. And like, in terms of the book, it makes a lot more sense because you are dealing with fey people. So, like, mm. um, for instance, the 81st Lord and the Prince's father, reportedly, by which I mean in the book, holds this title for 700 years. So obviously not a human person. No. Um, he defeated the Northern Goblins at the Battle of Cragland's Head, fathered eight children on three wives, so seven boys and one girl, killed his four brothers in combat before 20. So, like, it makes more sense in the book that, like, they're not really worried about killing each other off because the idea is that they should be extremely long-lived if they're not killed specifically. So I suppose the idea, like, it's important to have children and, like, do the air and spare thing. But it's also important that once you are grown or, like, growing up, that you then kill your your rivals and inherit the throne because chances are once they're all dead, the threats to your life are going to be quite min- minimal. True, it true. seems like because um, 700 years is a long time to hold the throne. So I assume, like, once he killed his brothers, the, their, the father was chill. Just chilling he out. He was just chilling for yeah. 700 years. You don't have to look over your back constantly. Yeah. And then they must also, I assume they're also quite, they don't have to worry about fertility because they seem like five, he had four brothers, so there were at least five children, and then he's had eight. So, like, they're not really worried about losing losing a couple of kids. 
So the Lord of Stormhold also holds a topaz, which is said to be the power of Stormhold. Um, in the film, it looks more like a ruby. It's def- I'm pretty sure it's red. It's No, it turns red. It is a topaz to start with. So it's fine. It is a topaz. So it's said to hold the power of Stormhold, and whoever wears it will would be Stormhold's master as long as he was of the blood of Stormhold. It is in throwing this topaz into the sky that Yvain is knocked down from the heavens and falls to earth because there's three kids left alive and none of them have are going to kill each other in the room, I guess. <laughs> so he's just like, I'm dying. I'm not going to make this decision. And he just chucks it into the sky and he's like, well, I'm done with it now. And then he dies. Yeah. And then they all and they end up killing each other kind of anyway. Yeah. Well, they they all want the stone. They're not going to share it, so like, they're just going to continue the competition, I guess. And then there's so the the princess, the daughter, the one girl child is Una. So Una is the firstborn child of the King of Stormhold, a princess who was lured away from her father's lands by a witch and then made into her personal slave. She is described in the book as having violet eyes and the ears of a cat. So again, much more focused on the non-human aspect of fairy whereas she's just a hot chick in the film (laughs) so like you know you're seeing like how things can be like like in in some ways the fae are also very generic now but they're still less generic than the tropes of normal fantasy (laughs) there's also the witches who are the villains or um at least in the book one of them is the villains the other two don't really do much so known in the book as the witch queen collectively, but also the main one is also the witch queen. So they're all the witch queen, but also the oldest one is the witch queen. So they're also called the Lilum. There are three of them. Um, So it is the oldest who goes on the hunt for Yvain in the book. She doesn't have a name, although she introduces herself to Mistress Samili or Ditchwater Sal, who was the witch who enslaved Una as Morrowineg because it meant, something to do with waves and it was it was basically a play on the fact that she doesn't remember her true name anymore um so she, she would give a false one anyway but this one was sort of like a little haha <laughs> i'm so clever yeah um in the book instead of like the show the showdown you get in the film as well where the witch queen where where michelle pfeiffer sort of goes a bit crazy and starts crashing glass everywhere it looks so good though um, instead, basically what happens is the Witch Queen tracks down Yvain um, after Tristan's gone to see Victoria and found out that she's marrying someone else and he said, that's chill, I'm cool. And Yvain's like, oh, you're not you're not going to marry Victoria? That's great. That's chill for me. They go back, I think, to they go back over the wall briefly and the Witch Queen meets Yvain and she's like, oh, it's weird that, like, I couldn't track you down anymore. And, it's, and she's like, it's because you no longer have your heart. Um, you gave it to that boy and Yvain's like, yeah. The Witch Queen's like, that's a bad idea because he'll break your heart, but whatever. Um, and she just leaves. <laughs> she just pisses off. Such a such a weird culmination of uh, events. It's really good though because like it's not, you don't, like it's not the sort of book that offers like a huge confrontation. Like it, it's not that style of book. So it's quite, quite nice because it's all, it, it's all sort of like, it wraps up the ending sort of nicely, but without like, violence which is like i mean just because they're like i feel like the movie makes them overly bad but just because they're witches doesn't mean they necessarily have to be super bad they're like they just exist in the world and they're like immortality would be nice yeah 
And as well, instead of Tristan immediately taking the throne, which is what he does in the movie, he and Yvain travel fairy together for like, I think it's like they're gone for like five years. And then they come back to where Una's being, Una's regent of Stormhold. And they come back and they're like, oh, we're not quite done. So I think they go go out again for like another two years or something. So they, they travel for a while um, and then they come back and rule together. And also unlike the film, um, where they live, like they share Yvain's immortality until they decide to go live among the stars, yep. which I think is a, is actually sort of a nicer ending than the actual one in the book, which is that Tristan does eventually die and Yvain continues to rule the kingdom after his death, potentially eternally. It's not made clear. But um, that kind of sucks because I sort of like the idea that they return to the stars. Yeah, that was nice. I mean... We've done our Dragonheart episode. Surely everyone knows how much I love the returning to the stars. <laughs> I can't wait till you listen to the Dealer's Choice episode of Dragonheart and you hear <laughs> Alex's opinion on that. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure his opinion is, I, I'm sure it'll make me laugh. At least, but he's fi- That's fine. He doesn't need to like it. I like it though. <laughs> um, so in the film, the witch sisters do have names. So they're named Lamia, Mormo, and Empusa. So the Empusai and the Lamiai and the Mormo Lakea were fearsome demons um, which assumed the form of forms of beautiful women to lure young men to their beds and feed on their flesh and blood in Greek mythology. So I just think that's a cool that's a cool source for their names. So like Yeah, they could have named them anything, but that's cool. Yeah. So behind the illusory facade, the creatures were truly demonic. The Lamia had the tail of a serpent in the place of legs, while the Empusa had flaming hair and two mismatched legs. So she has one of brass and then one of an ass, by which donkey, not like. But just to be clear. <laughs> Wait, well, what was the part of, what, what part was it? So she got two, the, the Empusa had oh, matched two mismatched legs. legs. One of brass and one of an. So it was a, a donkey's leg, not a not a butt. Yeah. On her leg. <laughs> not a. Just trying to figure out how that would work in my head. <laughs> um. So later authors, um, in Greek mythology, described the la- Lamai as ghosts, which used illusion to seduce young men. They were the companions of the goddess Hecate or Hecate, which followed her to Earth from the depths of the underworld. The Impusa and the, the Lamai were also considered the equivalent of vampires and succubi in the ancient world. So really cool place to pull from the name for the for the witch queen. Yeah, someone was working overtime. Yeah, they did a good job on that one. <laughs> so fairy as a realm in mythology. So it is described by Tolkien in his essay on fairy stories as the perilous realm, which I think is just a really good description for what it is. Um, so fairy can mean both the creatures that inhabit the other realm, but also the realm itself. So it is an idea inherited from the other worlds of mythology, such as the land of youth in Celtic myth. Um, and since we've already sort of talked about Celtic myth and the legacy of the fae and the and fairies and how they conceptualize that sort of that sort of myth. Um, we're going to talk about there is one I think one mention of the unseelie court in the book. So we're going to talk about the unseelie and seelie courts for a little bit. So the idea of the the seelie and unseelie courts comes from Scottish fairy tradition, 
so the idea is that there is the Seely Court and the word Seely translates to English as blessed. So the fairies of the Seely Court are generally considered to be benevolent and are known to help humans in need, but they can also, like, if you offend them, even fairies of the Seely Court can be dangerous to humans, whereas fairies of the Unseely Court are the contrast to the Seely Court, so they're always harmful to humans. The um, Seely Court includes the likes of the Nakalavi and the Red Cap. So I don't know if you know the the some of the stories of the Red Cap, but like one of them is like they their Red Cap comes from the blood of their victims that they kill. They sound lovely. They're the inhabitants of this Unseely Court, um, and it also contains the restless souls of the dead. So many YA fantasy that involves like the Fae or riffs on the motives of motifs of the Fae also include references to courts, usually of like light and dark or summer and winter. And it's just like a slight rebranding of the Seely and Unseely courts for modern audiences. <laughs> just uh, copy my homework, but you know, not too much. Yeah. So, and then we're going to talk about, and then so like fantasy land, which is what you sort of get in the film. Um, the land beyond the wall doesn't really have any of the fairy touches that it has in the book. Like there's no, there's no, you know, Una with her violet eyes and her cat ears. Like there's just, they're just, they're just people who happen to live in a slightly more magical society. So instead it's, it, it fills more of the purposes of, of a generic fantasy land. So Diana Wynne-Jones has a, like a metafiction satirical book called The Tough Guide to Fantasyland and it presents a whole list of tropes that go into the various presentations of how people construct fantasy lands. So it's like, oh, you'll need a map because like all the books have maps at the front of the book and it'll talk about like how the, how the maps in, in a lot of fantasy books are the same. Or, and they'll be like, and then you'll need to go to the market because there's usually a market. <laughs> um, and they'll be like, and you'll need to buy a cloak and a sword because that it's all like the tropes that sort of are really, really common. And it lists, like, alphabetically a bunch. And it is, you can get the PDF online. So, like, people That's can have a look through it if they want. Um, but, yeah, it is interesting. And it is, but it is, like, you read it and you're like, yeah, okay, I get it. Like, fantasy's generic. But, like. Yeah. And also, like, the way it's generic is, like, that's also, like, and I don't know if it's because they just never do it differently, but that's also, like, every fantasy video game ever is you start, you have a map, and then you go, yeah. you buy a sword and a weapon, like. It's like, man, it's just, yeah, the same thing over and over but again. But that's, that's part of its charm in that yeah. there are things that you recognize. Like, it's really hard to define fantasy by, by like, what's in it in the same way because, like, the collection of tropes that you find in any one work will never be the same as necessarily the collection of tropes that appear in any other work because there's so many that you recom- that you combine and recombine so that way things end up being different and maybe you flip some and then suddenly you've got a whole new type of trope. So, like, that's what part of its charm is that you can't define fantasy necessarily by what makes it up because there's so much that makes it up. But because if you consume enough fantasy, you know fantasy when you see it because it has whatever combination of those things that you know makes up a fantasy story. And a lot of that stuff is inherited from folklore. So it's just, I just, yeah. It's not unsurprising to me that, the way the film, the way that the film aesthetic hits a lot of those tropes. Like, I, I love the film's aesthetic. I think it is, it is really, really beautiful and, and lush and it, it gives you a sense of the idea of what this fantasy land is. 
but it is unsurprising that it is in that way generic. And it, I suppose it also makes sense that it doesn't give any sense of that not humanness of things because that would, I think, complicate the story in a way that in a film it doesn't need to be complicated, but yeah. it is a much it is a much richer book experience for being related to fairy. Whereas in the film, it's still like, it's still very, it's still a very good story. It's still lovely to watch without having those elements. Yeah. Um, we've sort of talked about star superstitions and fallen stars before in other episodes. So I only have one thing to add to sort of the idea of that in um, folklore and myth and legend, which is that I found out that Asteria um, was the Titan goddess of falling stars and also potentially nighttime divinations such as aneromancy, which is uh, telling the future or prophecy or interpreting dreams, and then also astrology, which is obviously divining by the stars. Um, interestingly, she was the mother of um, Hecate, the goddess of witchcraft, by the Titan Perses. So that's just fun that Hecate's come up twice, and that also there was a Titan goddess of falling stars. I think that's great. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'd be, a, I'd be that. Sounds like a chill time. Titan goddess of falling stars? Yeah. Nice. Stars are pretty, man. They sure are. The book also talks about Pan, um, who is also from Greek mythology, um, and refers to him as Lord of the Forest, which is something that is sort of um, inherited, not necessarily just not necessarily from like one source of European folklore, but there are a lot of deities like Pan who have very similar sort of roles that are referred to as like Lord of the Forest. So you get them across like whole different swathes of European folklore, this figure who represents the forest and things in the forest, animals, the men who go there to hunt, things like that. Um, so Pan specifically was the god of shepherds and hunters and of the meadows and forests of the mountain wilds. His unseen presence aroused panic in those who traversed his realm. A wide assortment of myths surrounded Pan's parentage, but Hermes is most often named as his father with a random nymph as his mother because it's Greek mythology. According to myth, he idled in the rugged countryside of Arcadia, playing his pan pipes and chasing nymphs. One of these was Pities, or I think that's how you say it, who fled his advances and was transformed into a mountain pine the god, who, and then became the god's sacred tree. They really love turning people into trees. They absolutely do. They love turning, like chasing after someone with unwanted sexual advances and then that person turning into some inanimate object <laughs> I, I actually I, i've never thought of it before but it'd be pretty it'd be pretty great to just be able to turn someone into a tree it's like tree i'll let you out later tree tree <laughs> tree tree it would fix some um, global warming for sure get all that oxygen in the air i mean i'm not sure i can support that claim but i mean it couldn't hurt but it <laughs> couldn't hurt um not sure it's so sure you'd be okay with being the person turned into a tree no no that's true after after this person first tried to assault you and then since you didn't want to be assaulted said fine you can be a tree then and you're like well this isn't an improvement yeah it's definitely uh, not the most ideal situation well they turn you into a stone like Dionysus with amethyst you know you just can't win yeah they're too powerful they're OP. so pan also fell in love with a beautiful nymph, nymph named syrinx who was the daughter of ladon the river god 
fleeing his attentions, Syrinx pleaded with Zeus to save her, and just when Pan captured the wood nymph, Zeus turned her into reeds. So trees, reeds, stones, lots of things you can be turned into. None of them particularly fun. Just nature. In rage, Pan smashed the reeds into pieces that's what they do but on reflection he this is the same sort of thing as like Dionysus who was like oh no I'm so sad about <laughs> turning this girl into a stone I will pour my wine on her and turn her into an amethyst or whatever they're always like I'm so mad and then they feel bad afterwards um, and they're like I guess I'll do something <laughs> he, so he on reflection he was struck with remorse and wept and kissed the broken reeds all that remained of his beloved as he kissed the reeds, he discovered that his breath could create sounds from them, so he made the musical instrument that could carry the lost that would carry the lost nymph's name. He made the pan pipes. Fun. It's like the, when they write it, it sounds romantic. But if someone were to be like, "Oh, so this guy, um, he uh, was pursuing this woman, and then he killed her, and then he felt bad, so he turned her bones into an instrument." It's really not <laughs> that romantic. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, it's more like this man, this guy was pursuing this lady. Which and she didn't want those advances, so he got the king of the gods to turn her into a thing, <laughs> and then he destroyed that thing, and then he felt bad about destroying that thing, so he made that thing into an instrument that <laughs> he could then carry with him. After like kissing it, he discovered it could become an instrument, and decided that he would do that. And he would carry it with him and it would bear his name forever. Like <laughs> Greek <laughs> mythology, man. But we're not done. But this one isn't like super long. So um, also there was a third nymph named Echo who, after spurning his attentions, was cursed to fade away, leaving behind just a voice to repeat their cries forever. Um, and then Echo is the one who finds Narcissus by the pool. So not not great. Not Not a great thing to happen because like it it fucked up Narcissa's life as well like Pam was like no fade away and then Echo did and then Echo found Narcissus and it didn't end well for Narcissus so it's just like it's a chain of just sucky endings yeah no happy endings um so Pam is depicted as a man with horns um with the horns legs and tail of a goat so pretty typical satyr but like a specific satyr he had a thick beard, a snub nose, and pointed ears, and he often appears in scenes in the company of Dionysus. Caves were often associated with the worship of Pan, notably the Caucasian cave on the slopes of Mount Panassus, which was dedicated to the worship of both Pan and the nymphs. Another cave used as a point of worship was the Vary Cave in Attica. Shepherds in particular sacrificed to the gods, usually kids, not like Anim, like the animal kids, not, not small children. Um, so kids, goats or sheep were offered small herdsmen statues made of clay as votive offerings. Other typical offerings to Pan include vases, lamps and grasshoppers made of gold. Along with Artemis, he was also held in high regard by um, hunters and his realm was seen as that of small games such as wild birds. Pan was particularly associated with Delphi and Athens where cult to the god was established which included castrated goat sacrifices and torch races according to myth and it this myth comes from herodotus and herod herodotus is considered i suppose a historian but he's more like a travel guide writer so like his claims are not not true <laughs> but they're fun so according to myth 
This court was established in return for Pan's assistance to the Athenians at the Battle of Marathon. So on the whole, I would say that Stardust is a fun book and fun movie. And I, if this was dealer's choice, I'd recommend everyone go and watch it. Maybe you can show it to everyone next time you come on. No, I've got better things to show you. <laughs> Just something nice. The last one was rough. Uh, I know I have plans and I, it, <laughs> I mean not I have a plan that's not nice but it'd be it's very fun it's fun but not necessarily yeah. nice um one thing I will say about this uh, I'm definitely probably going to go pick up the book now and read it it sounds interesting I love the movie I can give it to you because oh. I've got a copy yeah swapping swapsies let's do it um but I will say I find, for a fantasy I think especially the movie I don't I can't don't can't speak for the book it's very accessible yeah, it is absolutely accessible, even the book. Some people I know, like if you haven't seen Lord of the Rings and someone tells you you got to watch Lord of the Rings, they're very intense and it's a very, it's a slog. But as far as fantasy goes, Stardust is quite whimsical. It's quite fun. It's pretty easy yeah. to access. It's very light um, yeah. and I appreciate that. And the book's the same. Like it's not, it's not, it doesn't deal too heavily with like, you know, subjects that might get you down. It's all very much like adventures and fun and, you know, just like, crazy like the crazy like crazy stories that are gonna are, are like great that would be fun to tell to like your grandkids or whatever like it's just fun stuff i actually have a question about the book because like i do enjoy yeah. the whole like there's a whole captain shakespeare scene like is uh, that is that in the book I, that just feels like something that could potentially be a bit more embellished in the movie i wasn't sure um so they definitely meet captain shakespeare in the book but i i, I only skimmed it when preparing this episode so I didn't actually read that whole part because I was looking for more specific stuff that happens towards the end um they definitely he's definitely in the book whether or not he's the fun as fun a character as he is in the movie having just such a ball that's so enjoyable and like not treated so nicely for what it is like you know like not really like funny but not making fun of yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if that sort of stuff is in the book because I I, I didn't read that part um, in too much detail. Um, but you can find out because I'll lend you my copy. Sounds good. In terms of recommendations, I don't have that many because Stardust is in some ways very specific in its aesthetic and how it's written and how it's shown in the film that I was trying to think of stuff that was similar and struggling a bit. Uh, of course, I recommend basically all other books by Neil Gaiman because I have quite a few and I really enjoy him as a writer. I think he does very interesting things, has extremely interesting premises. So pick up anything by him and that's great. Um, In terms of films, there is a French version of Beauty and the Beast that plays on SBS movies all the time. And it has a very similar sort of rich, luscious fantasy aesthetic. Like the costuming is beautiful the set piece is beautiful like it's just gorgeous to watch and like stardust has that same sort of quality to me where like um it's a fun movie but and it might have a few dark moments but it is like on the whole like the production value is quite high and all of it just sort of it's just all all a very nice watch and this movie has that same sort of like it's all a very nice watch sort of thing this is a bit of a weird one but if you're sort of wanting to look at like conceptions of like the fairy in the way back times in like sort of a very lyrical and fun way than the poem the goblin market by christina rossetti is a really good poem talking about like you know talking about like sort of some of the rules of like fae interaction like you don't eat their food stuff like that um 
and it, it it has a lot of like imagery that sort of like makes me think of Stardust. Um, or I suppose Stardust has imagery that makes me think of the Goblin Market because the Goblin Market came first. Yeah. The only other thing I have to recommend is a book called The Night Circus by Erin Morgenstern. It isn't sim it isn't that similar to Stardust, but it has it again has some of that sort of like very specific sort of like aesthetic fantasy like just like really nice descriptions, really interesting magic, and just sort of like a different, lighter sort of fantasy than some of like you at the moment you tend to get a lot of like YA fantasy. And a lot of it interestingly is about fairies now. So like you get Holly Black and you get Sarah J. Mars who are both working in that area. And that's fine, but it can get a bit tiring or it can feel a bit oversaturated. And then you get like a lot of epic fantasy. Whereas the Night Circus is like neither of those. It's just like a nice standalone, but sort of, you know, not necessarily literary fantasy, but a good sort of like, like uh, light, interesting, complex sort of fantasy, but like not, not in those two realms. So that's something to pick up if people are interested. Sounds good. Um, just two things. I these are more of like I thought of these while listening. So maybe um, there's an episode of Supernatural with the fairy, and it kind of I think it kind of uh, deals with the idea of like being careful what you say, and yep. also the dumb rules and laws around them, like the way they defeat the enemy, and that is just like it's yep. like there are some of these some of these weird rules and dumb stuff. And another thing I thought of, and this is like a heavy um a bit more of a heavier fantasy, but the idea of like true names. And I thought it's very interesting in like Aragon, like mm -hmm. weapons have true names. And if you can figure out your weapons, true name, and it kind of makes it more powerful and that's a fun concept. So just two things I thought of throughout the, if you haven't checked out worth checking out. Do you mean Aragon, the movie or the books? Morgan? Um, I don't know if they ever delved into that in the single movie they did. <laughs> so uh... <laughs> I was just checking. Cause I'm not sure I can back up a recommendation for that film on this no, group. No, the books. I mean, I didn't even get through all the books. I definitely, I would, I wouldn't even recommend finishing that series, but you know, yeah, there's some stuff in I, there. Start it. <laughs> um, also, I mean, most people know this, but um, if you're looking for something that's a bit, like not lighter but easier to read um and deals with true names ursula k Le Guin's earth wizard of earth earth sea series true names big in that like almost i would say almost a hallmark for the use of true names that series so lots to check out yeah um and so thank you for doing all the research as always and uh thank you for enlightening us all today uh, and thank you for listening, everyone. We'll be back again with another episode. Don't know what it'll be on yet, but that's uh, for a uh, surprise for everyone then. So uh, thank you for listening. Go check out our Instagram, Facebook, and we will see you next time. This has been a Spiky Trap Radio production. For more Spiky Trap Radio content, please head to spikytrap.com.